You're listening to The Venue Podcast. The Venue is a worship gathering at Southcrest Baptist Church. We hope that this podcast helps you find your greatest pleasure and purpose in Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. If you have your Bibles, love for you to turn to Isaiah chapter 6 this morning. Uh, my name is Cole Rhodes. I'm our college pastor here uh, at the church. Our ministry is called The, the Journey. I see a lot of college students, uh, some familiar, some new faces. And so I'll be leading the journey as you come back for the fall or for the first time. It's great to see you. And just as a heads up, after the 11 a.m., we're having a, a lunch for all of you uh, college students that are, are here. We'd love for you to, to stay for that. I think um, most people that are like younger than college age and parents with kids younger than college age, you have um, been through the first week of school, depending on where you're at, maybe the second, or maybe you're for sure starting this week. But on, on that note, what I was thinking of at the beginning of a school year, at the beginning of any kind of year, I, I sort of think from August to May, that's sort of what my calendar looks like for beginning and school year and all that stuff like that, I, I tend to think about uh, some, some goals that I may have or maybe some things that I've learned from the year before that I may want to, to change. And as I was thinking about that, it reminded me of a documentary on Netflix that's called Last Chance You. Any, any of you heard of that? It's called Last Chance You. Great. Nobody in here. So this, okay, we have three people. Let me, I have an optional intro. Let me, let me look that up real quick. No, I got to stay with this. Sorry. So anyway, Last Chance University, uh, and by the way, the older you get, the more documentaries you watch. So I'm almost 30. So I got about 30 a year. So I think it's 31, 32. It just, that's what happens when you get older. So that's why I watch documentaries. Uh, but Last Chance U um, is about these uh, football players. And, and they've recently done one for basketball players, but basically these athletes who have made it to a division one school, um, but because of some bad decisions they've made in their life, a lot of times it's grades, they end up at like a community college or junior college that has a football or basketball program. And the idea is that they, got one, they have one or two years to do as best as they can um, to be able to get back to Division One, hopefully to the pros. And, and so the thing is, all of these athletes that you watch in this documentary, they're they're elite, they're amazing, and they're incredible, but it's decisions that they've made <laughs> that have actually like, kind of ruined that for them. And what's, um, it's not funny, but you kind of sit back and you watch, you notice they seem to make the same mistakes over and over and over again. And so if it's maybe uh, a, a poor moral choice that has gotten them to a junior college instead of the Division I school that they originally received an offer from, uh, they have trouble figuring that out and continue those patterns. Or sometimes it's just grades. Like, I don't know why, but they haven't figured out yet uh, that not going to class got them to that point where they are at the junior college and they still don't go to class. And so just for everyone in the room that's still in school, some, hey, go to class. I know that's brilliant, amazing wisdom that I'm shedding on you this morning. Uh, it's free, I promise. Uh, but you see this happening over and over again. It's kind of hard for me watching from the standpoint, especially being a college pastor and seeing a lot of these college-age athletes. I'm thinking, what is it going to take for you to get it? Like, just make this change. Like, you've seen where this leads. Like, what what needs to happen in your life furthermore to to show you, hey, you need to change some things up the way you're thinking, your lifestyle, and all those things. And, and what's amazing is some of them, some of them do. There's a linebacker by the name of Dakota Allen that came here to play, middle linebacker for Texas Tech. He's do did great things and he did turn it around. 
So as frustra- frustrating as that is, I, I think that even though only three of you in the room uh, really care about Last Chance You, I think a lot of you have asked questions that start with, what is it going to take? What, what needs to happen for this to change? And so for some of you, um, it, it looks like, you know, wives, you're like, husband, what is it going to take for you to remember to take out the trash, right? Like we do that, and that's fine. Um, some, of, some of you, for your, for your kids, you're like, what is it going to take to, to potty train our, our child? Like we seem to try everything, it's not working. Um, some of you that are maybe in the, uh, the, the dating realm, you're, you're like, man, what is it going to take for him to finally commit? You know what I mean? I don't know what your story is. But I can tell you that as a pastor, I ask those sort of questions. And it's, it's, it's honest frustration that comes from a good heart. And with leading ministry, sometimes you think, man, what, what would it take? What needs to happen in someone's life in order for them to see that when pastors say that reading the word is good, that they actually believe it, right? Uh, what does it take uh, for this person to see that this relationship that they're in is really not going to lead them to find their greatest pleasure and purpose in Jesus, but something else? Or what is it going to take for those in our ministry to really see that we're, we're not about entertaining, but we're about Christ and Christ alone. But I can tell you, the number one question that I find myself asking in this season of life, and sort of the, what is it going to take, what needs to happen, is this, and it's our topic this morning. It is the question, what needs to happen in your life for you to care about reaching the unreached? That terminology is very specific, but what I mean by this is basically there are people that don't know Jesus, and what we care about, we make time for. You ask me, I care about food, and I bet you I don't miss a meal today, right? You know it, all right? And so by virtue of what we spend our time on, we can see what we care about, and so what is it going to take for the church, for our ministries here, to be caring about lost and dying people who are filling vacancies in hell? And I'm actually excited because I think we're going to get the answer. We're going to see what happened in the life of our friend Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. Because I think if anyone had an excuse to maybe not really care about anything beyond himself and his own problems, it's Isaiah. And so Isaiah was a prophet. Chapter 6 is where he receives his calling as a prophet of God. And after King Uzziah had just died... There's lots of uncertainty concerning the well-being of God's people. What's interesting about Isaiah as a prophet is sometimes you have to know this prophet really was focused on southern kingdom, this prophet and northern. We really see him talking to both northern kingdom of Israel and southern kingdom of Judah. And so he's got like a double whammy of problems that he's seeing in both kingdoms and witnessing them even fighting each other, witnessing them feeling betrayal because of them befriending the Assyrian empire to try to make things better, which ended up making things worse, as you see in church history. And so there's a lot of things going in Isaiah's life, and he definitely had better excuses than us currently to not care about other people and their problems and reaching people with the message that God gave him. So let's jump in. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1 through 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. 
The whole earth is full of his glory and the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me for I am lost for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar and he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. In verse eight, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, this happens immediately afterwards, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then Isaiah said, here I am, send me. What needs to happen in your life and my life for us to care about reaching the unreached? Caveat, so you know, I may need this sermon more than any of you, and it's not because I haven't heard it before. It's because we need to hear it over and over and over again. So what needs to happen in order to care about reaching the unreached, about preaching the gospel to the lost, about our neighbors and family members and those in unreached places like Afghanistan, we need to see ourselves in light of the glory and holiness of God. In other words, we need to be humbled. We need to be lost before we're found. We need to be dead before alive and not making ourselves that, but we need to see that that is the reality apart from God in Christ. Amen. That's what's happening to Isaiah. He's in the presence of God and the seraphim, these holy six-winged creatures. They would probably really scare us if they were here. And like if they landed down here, like I'm the only one left probably. Like you guys are gonna get scared and run away. But they were, they were very interesting, um, but they were six-winged creatures and, and they were proclaiming what's called, what's called a three-fold superlative. A superlative is, is when you just keep saying something over and over again. It's, the, it's the, the highest word they could think of to describe God. And they're like, we're not only going to say it once, we're going to say it over and over and over again. Holy, holy, holy. And so what Isaiah is seeing himself for the first time is, is in contrast to God, not just to other people. Because what's interesting is that in the chapter before, Isaiah gives all of the people all these woes. Woe is you for all these things. Woe is you for all these things. And then he never in chapter five says woe about himself. But when he sees himself in light of God, all of a sudden it's like, oh, me too. I'm also unclean. And so here's, I think, what's kind of happening. Uh, let me illustrate this. So I don't know if any of you have been like athletes in the room or even in any space where you think that you are really, really good or awesome. Uh, I, I remember back in high school, I was ready to go into ninth grade. I thought of myself as fairly athletic and a fairly good football player. And I knew if there was a good chance that I was gonna make varsity as a freshman, okay? And so here's the thing though, like up till then, like homeboy, I'm homeboy. I haven't even played high school football, just middle school. And anybody can, well, not anybody, but most people can do good in middle school football, okay? I hate to break any of the super uh, middle school stars, but that's just, that's just true. So I get to high school, right? And, and I think I'm the strongest. I think I'm one of the fastest. I think I'm one of the, one of the smartest. Like, hey, you, you come you come up here in my space and you're gonna, you're gonna get knocked down, right? And so very prideful, as you can see, until I met a guy by the name of Rufus McCann. Rufus was not only stronger than me, 
as in he bench pressed 50 more pounds than me and squat 50 more pounds than me. Rufus was not only faster than me, as in I ran a, a humble 4.840 and he was running like a 4.6. He was also bigger than me. He outweighed me by 30 to 40 pounds. And so what happened in two days, I'm going to get my shot, right? I'm going to get my shot to take out the superstar. I'm going to take my throne where I rightly belong. And I begin the first drill. The coach sets this up. He knows the drama that's happening. He's like, I'm going to go have Rufus and Cole go head to head on the first day of pads. And I'm ready. All oh, a buck 75 of me while Rufus is at 225. I should have known the rest of the story. Okay. And so I run as fast as I can at Rufus. And you would have thought I hit an eight foot wide tree trunk. Like I, it was one of those things where you get hit so hard, you don't fall. Like it just stuns your body. You know what I'm saying? Like, like, that's hard, guys. Like, I'm saying, like, I still have residual effects from that, right? Even, even just saying the name Rufus, I was like, what? Is he in here? Okay, we're good. We're good. Um, what, what happened in that moment? I saw myself in contrast to someone who was greater and better than me. And you know what it did? It actually just made me more prideful and mad. I didn't get humbled. <laughs> but eventually... It did. It, it humbled me. It's like, ah, I am, I am not who I thought I was. <laughs> I was not as great as I thought I was. And I think that's what's happening with Isaiah in terms of his own righteousness and, and, and holiness, way more than Rufus McCann could ever do, seeing our creator and our God. And so what I want to ask you this morning as we're seeing Isaiah shake and tremble as the foundations are shaking in this vision that he's having in the temple, I want to ask you if you've ever had a moment, have you ever really pondered how truly great and amazing God is? Like, I want you to think about, like, we're not talking about a God who has to, like, pick up things and, and craft them and build everything. Well, we're talking about a God, friends, who spoke and the universe came into existence. You don't have a friend like that, right? If you do, you want to meet him, unless you, your friend is God. And that same God who spoke the world into existence actually wants to speak to me and you. You actually feel his thoughts, your, your name. The hairs on your head are something that he ponders and thinks about. You and me. Now, you know your track record better than anyone else, and you know if it was based on your qualifications, God wouldn't do that, would he? He wouldn't give you a second thought. I think that's what Isaiah is realizing. He's known the law, he's known he's God's people, and he's seeing God for the first time. I'm like, you care about me? You care about us? Woe is me, who am I that I would ever have thought myself worthy of even getting a word from you or even a thought, but oh my goodness, you brought me through this vision into your presence. Woe is me in the presence of God is the only right way to respond. And so first, in order to care about reaching the unreached, you need to see yourself as you truly are in light of the holiness and righteousness of God. But the thing is, it's not only enough to see yourself rightly apart from God, in contrast to God. What we see is God steps into the space in between him and us and does something quite amazing. And that's where verses six through seven come from. And then let's read this, Isaiah six, six to seven. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. 
and your sin atoned for. And so I think now that Isaiah's had this woe is me experience, he's humble before God, God enters this space, and in order to care about reaching the unreached, Isaiah and all of us, we need to have an experience with God's grace firsthand. A firsthand experience, not secondhand, not hearing someone else's story, but our story. So this was taking place, this vision in the temple, right? Y'all see that in, in the scripture? Now we know things that happened in the temple. Sacrifices were made in the temple. And where did the sacrifices for sins happen? At the altar. And where does the seraphim go in order to attain what is necessary for Isaiah's sin to be atoned for? The altar. He grabs a burning coal with, with tongs. And what's interesting, he's like, this is really hot. I'm going to grab it with tongs, but we're about to put it on his tongue. Okay, I don't know what he was thinking, but he wasn't worried about Isaiah's tongue. And comes over, applies this burning coal to the unclean lips of Isaiah. And so if you're like me, if you're reading this passage for the first time, or you've never really wrestled with it, you're thinking, what's up with the lips, right? Like, why the lips? Why, why not anything else? Like hands do things to feet, whatever. Here's what's happening. Isaiah said, I'm a man of unclean lips. A lot of times in scripture, it says, my lips will declare your praise. Sometimes it says, my tongue will declare your praise, but a lot of times it also says, my lips will declare your praise. And, and what he's saying is, I'm a sinner, I'm guilty, I'm unworthy. And so I think what's happened is he's hearing the seraphim say, holy, holy, holy. And he wants to sing that song, but he realizes, I'm not holy, I'm not worthy to sing that. And until I am, here's the reality that he's brought into. He's brought into a reality of I'm not holy, holy, holy. I am unclean, unclean, unclean. I am unworthy, unworthy, unworthy. And he's getting lower and lower. I am a sinner. And he's almost hiding his face. I'm not worthy to be in your presence, God. He was so unclean and wanted to sing the song of the seraphim, but he knew he wasn't worthy. He's saying, even my worship songs that I want to sing to you are tainted, so I can't sing until I'm made clean. Friends, you ever thought about that, that in Christ we've been made worthy to worship, like our worship is pleasing to God? Outside of him, outside of Christ being clothed in his righteousness, it's just empty words. That's why in the Lord's Supper, we ask if you're not a believer, hey, let's not partake. Because if you are a believer, you're participating in a reality you've experienced. Amen? That's what's happening. When we worship, it's, it's participating in, in, in these sorts of scenes, these Isaiah 6 scenes. We sort of, as the corporate body, get to, not physically, but in a spiritual sense, kind of transcend to be in God's presence and worship him. And look what's happened. Now that he's been made clean, he sings a song of reverence and worship to God. Isaiah has experienced the grace of God firsthand. What he's experienced is a foretaste of Jesus's final sacrifice on the altar of the cross. <clears throat> I had some student, a lot of students making fun of me and they can still make fun of me because Fast forward to fall retreat last year. Uh, we were all ready for it, and I actually um, got, got sick. I got the vid. I got out of there as soon as I could. Didn't want to get anybody else sick, all right? Quarantine, all that stuff like that. But 
even before the fall retreat last October, I had never been, but it was funny. I was promoting it as if I had been. And I was like, yeah, it's awesome. It's like in a mountainous area. There's all these things to do on Saturday. Like you can go out and do like ropes courses or whatever. I, I wasn't actually there on Saturday, so I still don't know very well. And so I was just talking it up and someone was like, cool, how many times have you been? I'm like, zero. <laughs> <laughs> well, why are you talking about it? And it was, I think it was Stephen Letkeman that gave me a hard time. He was like, bro, you still haven't gone. And I was like, I know, I know. I'm still going to promote it. So why was that funny? Why was that interesting? Why, why should that resonate with you? It's because I was trying to talk about something to, to influence others to come into something that I had never actually experienced myself. And so it had no power. It fell short. It was like, he says this, but he doesn't have any depth to it. And I think that's maybe something that we struggle with Christians in the room. We talk a lot about God's grace and we can sort of describe it, maybe muster up some sort of excitement about it. But I think a lot of times we're maybe borrowing from someone else's experience. We're sort of hearing some lingo about it. Like, oh, that's how Christians talk. I'm not saying that would make you an unbeliever, but what I'm saying in a very functional way, you haven't had a, a woe is me encounter with God. You haven't experienced his grace firsthand. And so you're walking in a graceless gospel that is actually, listen, if you want to care about reaching the unreached, it's it's actually not worth spreading, right? Think about it. Why would you care about telling others about something that has no power in your life? And even if you were verbalizing the fullness of what the gospel is, why would you be passionate about telling others about something that you haven't experienced yourself? That makes total sense. And if that's you, I want to extend as much grace as God would allow to that. To you, <laughs> that makes total sense. You, you've heard, you should preach the gospel, you should preach the gospel, but you've never heard maybe why that you haven't. And I believe from Isaiah 6, this maybe reveals some answers. So I ask you to wrestle with that this morning. But on the other side, let me, let me tell you something. I don't know how you could experience what God's grace and mercy really is, friends and not want to tell someone else about it, right? Like, I can't tell you how many times in, on Sundays and Tuesdays, I come over there, I'm about to come up, or I mean, I'm just out here on Sundays, and I have, I have tears in my eyes as our worship team is leading us because God just, he reminds me how good he is, worshiping with the body, and, and I just think, as loud as my praises will be in this room, <laughs> God cares equally about how loud my praises are outside of this room via gospel proclamation. And if you're in Christ, you can't help but do that. And I don't want you to feel guilty if you haven't done that. I want you to hear an invitation. I want you to hear an invitation. And so, how do you experience God's grace first? How do you experience the, the gospel? Well, if you're, you're, we're gonna get to that later if you're an unbeliever, but if you are a believer, you, you learn it. It's wrapped up. Tim Keller says the gospel is God saves sinners. That's it. That you, God saves sinners. The almighty God of the universe saves us who are totally undeserving of redemption and salvation because we're all sinners and we've messed it up, but he still loves us anyway. While you're enemies, he was running after you and pursuing you. While you were running as far and as hard away from him as you possibly can, he outran you, got ahead of you, and saved you at that spot. That's the gospel. And so you learn it. You preach it to yourself. Sometimes there's some mornings I have to wake up and on the drive here say, Colt, remember, you are 
a child of God, as we just sang. That's who you are. That's your identity. You're chosen, not forsaken. You are who the great I am says that you are. And because of that, nothing about today, your performance at work, no man or woman that you may disappoint, because of that, that's not going to wreck your identity. Your identity is in me. <laughs> Allow yourself to take time and stop and reflect upon the love of God that he's shown you in Christ Jesus. So in order to care about reaching on the reach, we need to have a woe is me experience, seeing ourselves in light of God's glory and holiness, and then we need to experience God's grace firsthand. But here's the thing. Up until now, we've just discussed necessary changes that need to happen in the heart, and that's important, and in the mind, and that's important, but that is the foundation. You can't skip those first two steps, but now what we need to do is we need to put good, wholesome, biblical gospel theology into action. Our theology must become practical. What needs to happen in your life in order for you to care about reaching the unreached? Verse 8 of Isaiah 6. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, this is Isaiah, here I am, send me. In order to care about reaching them, reach friends, you need to put your yes on the table before God. You need to put your yes on the table before God. And so I want you to notice immediately after Isaiah has this firsthand encounter with God's grace, he's like, hey, I'm gonna take about 10 years to think about my Christianity No, right afterwards, God does what? God commissions him. All right, who am I going to send? There's no one else in this vision. Isaiah's the only one there, right? He's like, I'll go. Send me. I'm right here. Put me in, coach. Let me go back at Rufus, see if I can get him again. I'm just joking. That's my own story. All right. You see, Isaiah went from woe is me to here I am. From woe is me to here I am. And only the God of the universe can do that. How did that happen? Isaiah is saying, God, your glory, your holiness, and grace, and mercy are too good to not share. They're too good. See, there are some things that we experience in our life that, that simply demand life change. They are that impactful. And so I, I feel like in my life, I have a personal Isaiah story. I have something very similar. And I remember um, going on a mission trip to India when I was 16 years old. And up to that point, um, as I just described some of my past, I was locked into sports. I would say I said the right Christian things and put on the right image. But really, my heart and desire were in self-glorifying things and, and, and being great and, and competing in the athletic sphere. And so I go on this mission trip because I was one of the good kids in the youth group. And up until that point, like I said, none of my efforts have anything to do with reaching the unreached until one night. It's the very last night of a revival that we're doing overseas. Now, if you've been to a lot of third world countries or really a lot of other countries besides America, if you are a foreign missionary to a certain place, a lot of times at the worship gatherings, if they have an actual building for it, they don't have you sit out in the audience. They put you at the front, like like up here, sitting in chairs behind the preacher. And so all of us are jet lagged. I'm like falling asleep half the time, but acting like I'm praying, right? I'm like, you know what I mean? Like putting those hands together. And so I, I preach it's the last night of the revival. Like awesome, amazing things are happening. And all of a sudden, I don't know what it was. 
I don't know if he could actually speak the language before. I don't know if it was, I don't know what it was, but he switched to the local dialect instead of using the translator. And it was like the whole room lit up. And before I knew it, at his invitation, people were coming in droves down to the front. Now, pause. The day before, I met a little boy named Yogesh and his dad, James, and his mother, who I believe would be initially, originally, or eventually named Deborah as her Christian name. But I met them the day before, cool, awesome, like great, couldn't talk with them much, but I, I recognized Yogesh. And so everyone's the next day just coming down here, just filled. It's insane. I've never seen anything like this. And so I'm, I'm up for my jet lag. I'm awake. I'm, I'm watching all this happen. And, and there's so many people. I, I can't see, like, distinguish who's who. And after the service, I walk over, I'm just like where these steps are, I'm walking down. And, and Yogesh, this little boy that I met the day before, walks over to me. And he can't speak English. But what he can say is this. Yesu. He's pointing at his heart. He was telling me, Jesus is now in my heart. And I don't know if that moves you, but it moved the snot out of me because I, I, was in, I just broke apart and, and, and fell in, into tears. And then they asked me, will you pray for me? The translator helped me. Will you pray for me as the first prayer over me as a, as a follower of Jesus? Like, me? Are you kidding? You want me to do it? So, but I was... Sure, I did it. I prayed for him. And I went home that night, friends, afterwards and just cried and wept in a hotel room in India because of what I realized. I went from what was me to here I am. What I realized is everything in my life up to that point had nothing to do, no trajectory toward reaching the yogas of the world. And in that moment, God used that to tell me, Cole, from now on, everything that you spend your life's energies doing, ultimately, it is so that more of the yogas of the world can hear the name of Jesus. That's what I did. I look back. That's where my call to ministry began. I spent some time overseas with my wife, Caitlin. But ultimately, God said, you're most effective here in the States. And so we do a lot of different things that on the peripheral don't look like they have anything to do with the Great Commission sometimes, but they have everything to do with the Great Commission, the heart and ultimate goal that we're seeking in everything that we do at this church and everything that I'm responsible for over our ministry is so that somehow what we do here may launch an impact on people across the world across our community, across our campus that don't know the name of Jesus yet. And so that's my Isaiah story, friends. And, and all it was, was I saw myself in contrast to the holiness and glory of God, namely his glory being displayed through seeing a kid named Yogesh come and point to his heart. That's all it took. It broke me forever. And I feel like in days and months and years, I've realized, hey, that grace that I've been speaking about, I have now experienced like firsthand, like I know it, I've seen it. I can taste and see that it's good. And of course, who am I but to do anything else? God did everything else. Who am I but to say, God, here I am. <laughs> you, you've done everything else. Like you're going you're gonna to do it with or without me. I, I, I'm in. Put me in, coach. That's my Isaiah story. And I, I want to ask you this morning, what, is, what does your Isaiah story look like? Because it doesn't have to be in a hotel room in India. It can be in, in the venue at the 930 service today. <laughs> it can be in your home. It can be in your car. It can be at your place of work. It can be in a room with a counselor after you've waited way too long to deal with some things. 
can be in a hospital room. What Isaiah experienced before the throne of God changed the trajectory of his life forever. We experience God's salvation, we are forever changed. Some people are just like, I don't feel like missions is for me. And I'm like, guys, it's called the Great Commission, not the Great Suggestion, all right? <laughs> like, come on, like, start somewhere, you know what I mean? Like, I don't, know how to, I don't know how to make disciples. Well, find someone that you think that does and ask them if they'll teach you. Open the Gospel of John, grab you a good Bible study book or good study Bible and just start reading and growing. Ask yourself, what is God speaking to me through this and what must I do because of that? That's, that's discipleship essentially from the word of God. Then you go and do that with other people. Sharing the gospel or evangelizing is hard. There's just people in our American culture who just, they're just pushing back so hard against the gospel. It's not stopping the believers in Afghanistan. Is it? Most context of Christians, the gospel and evangelism has always been hard and always cost something. We don't realize that because this is all we've known in America. But we are definitely an anomaly. We are definitely an anomaly. And so I tell you, that wasn't an excuse for Isaiah. He was told right after in verse 9 in chapter 6, you're going to go share and no one's going to listen. That's basically what he said. You're going to go proclaim and you're going to be obedient. You're going to have very little fruit from it, but you're going to be obedient because I said go. I'm sending you. You know what sharing the gospel basically is too? It's just sharing your story. What was your life before Christ? How did you come to Christ? And what does your life look like now? You can do that through mumbled words. You don't have to be an extrovert or professional speaker. And some of you are like, what's the worst that could happen if I don't care about this stuff? What if it just continued living as if none of this stuff mattered? What if I didn't change anything about my life today, well, I would ask you, let's look at the facts. Last year, 60 million people around the world died last year, and over 40 million of those deaths were in countries that have the least access to the gospel and the least amount of known believers. So friends, here's what this means. This means that the countries with the most deaths are also the countries with the fewest believers. The countries with the highest death percentages have the lowest percentage of people who know the gospel much less share it. So my question is, does that not speak for itself? <laughs> we have to care. God's given the responsibility of this to us. <laughs> Think about how many resources we have. He wants us to be sent with those resources, not to hoard them, to build bigger churches. So in order, friends, to care about reaching the unreached, we need to put our yes on the table. As we close today, I wanna share a story with you about a man named R.S. Jones, he was a missionary to Brazil. I think putting your yes on the table looks a lot like the old hymn, Wherever He Leads, I'll Go. Y'all heard that hymn, anybody? Wherever He Leads, I'll Go. All three of you again. I got three hand raisers in the room this morning. This is great. Just for future reference, when Brandon comes back next week, y'all should raise your hand a little bit more. Helps out. <laughs> Just joking. So R.S. Jones is a missionary was speaking, this is an article I'm reading, was speaking at a Sunday school convention in Clinton, Alabama. You know this is old school, right? <laughs> so after many years of missionary service in Brazil, he had been forced to return home. Doctors said he could not return to the mission field. Bayless Benjamin McKinney, or B.B. McKinney, a leading Southern Baptist hymn writer, was leading the singing at that Sunday school convention on the night his friend Jones was speaking. 
Listen. After the meeting that night, B.B. asked Jones about his plans for the future, and Jones said he didn't know what God had in store for him, but he says the words of the song, which are what? Wherever he leads, I'll go. And so B.B. McKinney, he couldn't get these words out of his mind. He went to his room immediately. He wrote down the words and music for this hymn, Jones was speaking again at the closing session of that convention, and after his message, B.B. told Jones' story, and then he sang the hymn for the entire convention. Friends, that missionary named Jones, (laughs) even with health problems, was still saying to God, wherever you lead, I'll go, and we have trouble. Most of us who sing the same song today, we have trouble even going next door. (laughs) to our neighbors, much less anywhere God will lead. So what I'm gonna ask you this morning is will you be compelled by Isaiah's story? By the word of God and not the great suggestion, like maybe if you want to, but no. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, the great commission. To say, God, here I am. Put me in. In a minute, we're gonna have a time of response. There's gonna be people like every week up here. I have some suggestions. I can't make you do this, but maybe some of you need to see yourself in light of God's glory and be humbled and confess that you're a sinner in need of God's grace for the very first time, have a firsthand, first-time experience with his grace by believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That may be some of you. Some of you, you're saved by the grace of Jesus, but you've not been living in light of God's glory and holiness. You're like, woe is me? No, no, wow is me, (laughs) right? (laughs) And some of you need to check your heart this morning and see that you've been living for your own glory when you've actually known better. And Jesus holds out his arms wide open and says, come to me, all, all of you wherever you're at. And some of you might be wrestling with what your ultimate purpose is in Christ. (laughs) Welcome to the answer in Isaiah. Your purpose is to put your yes on the table before God, to say, God, here I am, send me. Send me to my campus, send me back to work, send me to my home to disciple my children. Send me to unreached places. God, my yes is on the table if it means that. Send me to Afghanistan if there's a way to get there so I can help. No matter where you are, we're gonna have people up front to talk with you. And I was to invite you like we do every week. There's nothing magical about this, but maybe some of you with those different options, that you, different ways you need to respond, you need to treat this as a physical altar and just come do business with your creator. You are saved to be sent. You are called to be called out. You are drawn in to be drawn out. You are set free so that you can freely put your yes on the table. In Christ, every single one of you in this room have been brought from woe is me to here I am. What will you do with that reality? This morning. You're listening to The Venue Podcast. The Venue is a worship gathering at Southcrest Baptist Church. We hope that this podcast helps you find your greatest pleasure and purpose in Jesus.